A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we're giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey everyone, welcome to the 229th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Neil Awesome and Kyle McConaughey, whose hat I am mailing out today. Uh, as long as the USPS is still in service. I'm Warren Kaplan. <laughs> I'm Matt Enlow. Today we've got Eugene Katliarenko, the director of Spree, the new movie starring Joe Keery. You recognize him from Stranger Things, even though his hair has changed. Spree is a super fun movie. It's kind of like a new take on found footage. It's like a lot of social media live streams, a lot of GoPro. It's really inventive, really stylized, really cool, and has a very like cutting edge kind of point of view about social media and the nature of attention and the economy behind attention and also you know the darker sides eugene is super smart it's really a great conversation we get into the philosophical aspects of filmmaking and what it means to make a thriller uh, in this era and also talk a lot about the practicalities of making a you know a, a social media streaming thriller so it's great and also the movie is out now you can check it out on vod but also Go check it out in the drive-in. It's in drive-ins across the country. And I have a couple friends who went to the Arclight screening and had a great oh, time. Really? Yeah, it's a super fun movie. Or and I both got to watch it in advance of the conversation. And this is a great drive-in movie. Like, if there is a silver lining for moviegoers, it's that the drive-in is back in a meaningful way. And so if you're lucky enough to have one in your town or if there are pop-ups, go check it out. Super fun. Yeah, it's funny. You and I, I feel like... We interview a lot of people, uh, a lot of filmmakers, sometimes about their film, sometimes not. Sometimes we've seen the film, sometimes we haven't. But, uh, you know, we usually kind of let people listen to the conversation and decide if they should go. But for some reason, we're like all in on this film. <laughs> you know, I think it caught both of us by surprise because I don't think on paper it would be the type of movie that either of us would be interested in. What, and not to a be poster with the guy who's got blood all over his face. That's not yeah, your yeah. First click, not not my first choice. And also, you know, there's a few red flags. I would say, you know, it's it's a it's a ride sharing movie, which isn't inherently a bad idea. But like we've seen the bad version of that a handful of times already. Social media satire. I feel like it can veer into like ugh. Yeah. Didn't kids Logan just Paul be taken? already do that? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Sorry, or Jake like. Paul. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, ki kids be taking selfies is kind of like the the dumbest version of that take. And this movie is so much more than any of that kind of um, obvious first blush um, analysis of a film. So we, I think we both really enjoyed it. I th we also 
not to get too deep into the how we make the show, but we kind of have tried to find a balance of who has seen the movie and who hasn't, you know, it's, we want to make sure that there's some objectivity so that we can talk about from the perspective of a a person who hasn't seen the film, since we're assuming that most of our listeners haven't had the chance to see a movie yet when we're talking to a filmmaker about it. But this is the rare circumstance where both of us decided to see the film and uh, loved it. So it's pretty great. Well, if you don't mind me jumping on that line of explaining part of how this show comes together and it is part of how we get our guests so a lot of guests are pitched to us by publicists and I just think Eugene who was pitched to us by a publicist is like a really good example of an independent filmmaker that still lives in Los Angeles and knows a lot of people and the reason he ended up on the podcast is that we had like so many touch points with him Uh, he was pitched to us by his publicist both Matt and I totally by coincidence have worked with the editor of this movie Ben Moses Smith I think not not entirely by I think I recommended him to you so that's not a coincidence. Oh, oh, no, sorry. Not a coincidence that both of, that you and I have worked sure. with. By coincidence, he's the editor of the movie that, right. that Eugene and directed. And it's super well cut, which is really nice also. Yeah. And on top of that, I had like met Eugene randomly at a pokey store around the corner from my house. So even if you're not like in the Hollywood system, I think there is something. Uh, and again, I know during a global pandemic when we're like in a hot spot of COVID, it's not not maybe not the hot topic of the moment. But like living in L.A. when things are normal does connect you to people in just like the weirdest, most random ways. And I think what we've learned from so many of our past like hundreds of guests is that just meeting someone one time is it's hard to turn that into something. But like building like a bunch of relationships and touch points and like meeting someone you know, in 2005 and then later on working with them in 2016 is like just a totally normal part of uh, the film business. And, you know, I know I know most of our listeners know that, but the, those of you that um, are a little bit more on the outskirts, I think my reasoning for why it's so important to just build your network and find your people. And, you know, if you come out to L.A. at some point, you meet some people and um, yeah, interact. I think also it's worth mentioning that Eugene has a handful of films uh, that played South by Southwest and were really innovative and interesting and oftentimes uh, experimented with the same sort of themes and formal approaches that he's taken with Spree, with computer screens and all of that. But I think he talks really eloquently in this episode about how those first few movies, he just went and shot. You know, like it was, he did them quickly over seven days with his community of people. He kind of cast and put them all together in a fun, unique way based off of the community that you're talking about, right? And so I think that there are people who are listening in a different place and they're thinking, well, you know, Hollywood is full of fakes or everyone is just out for themselves or networking sounds gross to me. And I get that and agree with that in a certain sense. And also, if you take it, if you take the idea of building community and collaborating people and like just being nice and open to relationships and collaborations, the point of living in Los Angeles is that you're more likely to run into people who have the same goals and aspirations and are willing to help each other. That's the point, right? And so that's why we are still here. And so I think Eugene really does a good job of representing the potential and possibility of of that sort of mindset yes and uh, mayor eric garcetti of los angeles did pay us to say all those things mm-hmm. uh, we're yeah. losing people at a very fast clip and we're trying to get some <laughs> yeah, new yeah. people come back on back into in. hollywood cool well before we talk to eugene i want to talk real quick about this idea that matt and i had of 
something we could do during uh, the pandemic that can not necessarily replace our live shows, but that would give us a little bit of like a slice of interactivity with our listeners and especially our listeners that are not local to where we have the live show. And so we came up with an idea called Office Hours, Just Shoot It Office Hours, that we're going to try out on Thursday, August 27th. My mom's birthday, by the way. Hey, happy birthday, Judy. So, yeah, the, the idea is that, you know, we were just inspired by so many people who reach out and want to talk about their film or have a specific question or, you know, just want to kind of hang out talk with us, weeks. hang out for a little bit. And so... You know, we, we've seen so many great examples of people live streaming panels or doing kind of remote interview shows. And we knew that that wasn't really going to be something that we would add to the conversation a ton. But we thought, oh, it would be great to be able to talk with people and in real time, check out their reel, check out the trailer to their new indie film, answer any sort of questions, and then, you know, just hang out, keep it casual. And so the idea of office hours, I think, kind of clicked in for us and and makes a ton of sense in terms of just like it being like a little bit more of a party and like certainly we're trying to curate things a little bit so that it's not chaos but the biggest bummer of the show sometimes is that we have to turn down a lot of really exciting cool people who have interesting things to say and want to chat you know with our listeners about it but for whatever reason, it doesn't work out. And so this is kind of a backdoor for that as well. And so if you've ever wanted to talk about a film and again, it can't just be promotional, but like, you know, if you, if there's something that the community could learn from say distributing your film during the era of COVID or how you made a movie with no money or like that sort of stuff, I think those conversations can be had and we're trying to build a platform for it. Yeah. And I think, you can also, if you there's something you want to tell us, like correct us. It doesn't. It's not sure. necessarily uh, has to be a one way thing. I think this is the way it's going to work. It's we're trying this for the first time. It's kind of a format that I think we came up with. So I don't know how well it'll work. But this this is kind of what I was picturing. We're going to be doing this from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific time on Thursday, the 27th of August, and we are going to have 12. You think right? 12 10 minute slots. Yeah, I think uh, so. And we will have 12 listeners sign up for those slots, and they can log on. We Anyone else is welcome to join, but they're the ones that will kind of have a question. Or They'll have dibs, basically. Yeah, yeah, or show their reel or show a short or whatever they want to do. We're, we're all yours for that 10-minute chunk, and then we will cycle on to the next person. And I think we're going to open it up to patrons for the initial sign-up period, and then we're going to open it up to anyone else that might want to talk to us. So it might just be Matt and me and you, whoever you are, or Matt and me and you and like a few other people that are just along for the ride, listening, typing things in the chat and stuff. But we thought this might be a cool thing. It's like office hours with observation optional. So uh, swing on by, hang out, chat with us. You know, let's see how the conversation goes. If we're having a great time, we might go longer, you know, but we will be there from seven to nine on August 27th. If you go to justshootapod.com slash office hours, you can learn more about uh, what we're doing and sign up there. With that said, if you do want to become a patron ASAP, you can go to patreon.com slash justshootapod. And if you don't, then just uh, hang out, do whatever you want, listen to the podcast. I am sending a ton of stickers today, basically, 
Uh, so if you don't get your sticker or if you want if you want to get a sticker, they're going to be coming a lot faster and a lot sooner. And I think we're going to restructure our Patreon tiers a little bit more so that people get a little bit more access to the cool stuff that we're trying to offer. And it's a, just a little bit easier to understand and uh, wrap yeah. your head around. We're renaming it Patreon Tears of Joy. <laughs> so come check Delicious. it out. Delicious. Patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. And with that, let's talk to Eugene Kotliarenko. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. Thanks for joining us. Congrats on the film. Thanks. Sundance 2020. Yeah. Squeaked in there pre-pandemic. I mean, I think that was maybe the last like film festival, maybe Berlin, that didn't really have to consider, you know, the worldwide global crisis that has defined our year along with you know other amazing and horrific things that have happened yeah so can you tell us about spree uh, the logline right so, so spree so the logline is that spree will become the new thing that defines 2020 when spree comes out um and i guess people listening it's already out uh will be like whoa <laughs> we gotta start we gotta start talking about this one instead of a uh, stupid covid um, yeah, it's a it's a social media critique. It's a comedy. It's a horror film. It is about a rideshare driver named Kirk Kunkel who is desperate for uh, social media following, and so he decides to go viral by live streaming a murderous rampage. I, I think it's important to point out it's sort of a, a new version of like a, a found footage film, right? In that it's kind of all shot through GoPros or surveillance footage a couple times, but mostly GoPros and, and cell phone footage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, you know, conceptually, that is foregrounded in the storytelling, right? So he is presenting this tutorial as a live stream, right? So, I mean, this isn't a, a spoiler. At the beginning of the film, he sets up his cameras and you're introduced to his sort of like technical setup, which then the film is presented through that mode. And it's even like a plot point at a certain like there's a few instances where like a camera will like fall off of a window or something like that. And it affects the way that not only the story unfolds, but the way that we see it. Yeah. My first movie 10 years ago is called zeros and ones. And that was a film about a guy who loses his computer and has to figure out who stole it. And that entire film was told through um, operating system and computer apps and programs and websites and stuff and you know sort of trying to use the language of a computer to tell that story however it wasn't conceptually and you know integrated into 
the characters, right? So thematically, it made sense to tell it through the computer language, but the characters themselves weren't like, you know, presenting the story through their own devices. You know, I mean, this is, this is 2010 is the era when like, people first started embedding like YouTube or daily motion or something. So it's a much more primitive technologically era. Um, you didn't even really have, you had the earliest smartphones when we shot that movie in 2008. Anyway, so I've sort of dabbled in that sort of stuff since that first film. I did also make a film that year called Skydiver, which was all through uh, webcam conversation through Skype and Gchat. So kind of like what we're doing on Zoom, but 10 years ago. And so in that, I found a mode where it was very clearly about the webcam conversations. And I've sort of dabbled in that stuff in my other films. And then when we got the idea for Spree, my co-writer and I, Gene McHugh, which was the idea of how scary it is to get into a rideshare with someone who might be psychotic. And when we started exploring what themes were driving that monstrous character, you know, and naturally, I went towards like social media and sort of uh, attention economy and the sort of thirst for relevance. And so when we, we when we settled on that as being the driving force for him, we decided we would have to present it in this. You know, I mean, I guess you could really call it found footage 2.0 because it's presented as live, so almost like a high noon ish thing, but like with found footage I guess. And, and some murder i guess I, there's murder in high noon but, yeah at the know. end yeah 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 right so you, you were doing this way before like searching the john cho movie and, yeah um, what was the other one unfriended. Where it's like these, unfriended yeah so some of the people so zeros and ones very humble independent film a lot of people volunteered their time and energy because i think they were excited that you know we were trying to do something really new one of our vfx artists was the vfx supervisor on unfriended Someone that I worked with closely editing uh, that project and a few others became the editor of Unfriended. So whether or not Timur Bekmambetov and, and kind of that t- the Bazilev's team knows it, I think they do at this point. I've had a few meetings with them. Um, you know, a lot of people on their core team worked with me on, on Zeros and Ones basically four or five years before Unfriended. What's so interesting to me about the process of doing these kind of screen share style movies is that immediately it creates an artifice that maybe prevents personality from coming through in the worst case scenario, right? And Spree, and I kind of assume probably all of your other movies from all the trailers and things that I've watched are heavy on personality, heavy on point of view, heavy on, you know, the quirk and humor and all of that. How do you, how do you approach such an artificial way of shooting and add that sort of perspective? Yeah, I think it's all just comes from the filmmaker and what their intention is. So it's not inherently distancing. In fact, depending on your approach to it, it could be quite immersive, you know? So like for me, I want to exploit the qualities of this, you know, formal language that make people feel like they are watching something real. And I mean, a big part of what's horrifying about Spree is that when you're watching it, you really believe it could be happening. And uh, so that's really important to me in terms of character. Like, yeah, I just like movies that have like entertainment value. Not j- I don't I don't want the screen found footage, whatever thing to be a gimmick. Right. It has to be an extension of the character. So the way people use social media. Right. Actually, it reflects in the storytelling because we all use it differently. And, you know, the platforms are like this framework for us to then sort of, you know, share our 
perspective or, and or be you know constrained from sharing our perspective. And that's something that I'm thinking actually about for like another movie in the future. Like how do those platforms actually become more important than your like how does the medium become the message in terms of like you know how does it control what you are able and unable to say because that's something we really haven't explored whether it be in film or just generally in culture like these platforms and social media apps are very very central in what we are and aren't allowed to express and how we express ourselves oh yeah i just got in a fight with a friend because um they said that i was not expressing myself enough on social media regarding a certain topic which is it just seems kind of like the rules and expectations are changing like on a weekly basis well i think the thing that happened is over time you know there's a few things that happened but basically people have become conflated individuals have become conflated into brands and so we hold individuals up to the same scrutiny we would hold up like corporations that are supposed to have like, you know, ethics and what all, you know, corporations, we should be critical of them and hold them up to scrutiny. Human beings, I think, are should be allowed to be a bit more flawed and a bit more imperfect. And we started treating corporations kind of like individuals. And that has, you know, kind of morphed our sense of like what identity is in a way for ourselves. And so it's a really kind of troubling landscape in terms of like, you have to use these things to feel like you exist. Like that's something that Kurt says, right? If you're not documenting yourself, you don't exist. And at the same time, the way these things make us feel about ourselves is really dehumanizing because we could become very statistically oriented, very immediate feedback oriented, and also start treating ourselves like, you know, we strive for perfection, but in this sort of corporate mentality, branded mentality. And, you know, that's a lot of what the film is about, but it is also a lot of what our lives are about now. And I'm sure as people who, you know, have a, a something that you plug or, you know, are trying to promote or whatever you have. You yeah. Uh, by the way, we have a Patreon. Um, check it out. Okay, exactly. Patreon.com slash. Like and subscribe, guys. Well, yeah, I think so. Just to give people a little more context, Joe Keery, who is probably most known for playing Steve Harrington on Stranger Things, is the lead in Spree. And he's so, so good in it. And there is like what you just said. If you're not on social media, you don't exist type of thing, which performing that idea is it makes him sound like a psychopath but it is really what so many people think he's just kind of saying it out loud you know it's rare for a character to get to state the theme and like his motivation (laughs) so explicitly right Uh uh-huh like i am doing murder because i feel this way (laughs) yeah no i mean i think part of the trickiness but also i think what's rewarding about watching joe in this character is that he at kurt kunkel is so oblivious to the immoral horrors that he is enacting, you know, because he truly believes that by doing a tutorial, regardless of the content, just the idea of sharing a tutorial with the world is good, you know? And so... I would agree with that. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, (laughs) you know, prove me wrong, right? Sharing is great. You know, prove me wrong. Like, that's the Kurt Kunkel ethos. And so for him to very explicitly explore that I think also digs into, you know, the thing about social media and a lot of the characters in the film, you know, his passengers and stuff and his father, for instance, and even Jesse, who Sashir Zamata plays really brilliantly and who ostensibly is like the hero of the film, they believe that they are hiding their true intentions, um, whereas a viewer can really see how transparently they crave relevance and fame and, you know, virality and stuff. And Kurt 
what is, I mean, you know, he's a monster, but you see yourself in him in a way because he's just able to sort of naively expose that thing that most people think they're um, hiding, right? Which is that they desperately want to be loved via likes and hearts and shit. Right. You brought up the father character who's played by David Arquette. I love that character because you kind of like set him up to be this like stereotypical archetype of like the, you know, not non-existent dad that's just a jerk and has whatever abuse problems and things. And not that he's not that, but there the way he communicates with his son, I just like love, he like calls his son bro and stuff. And yeah, he's very this- infantile, right? Like he's stunted in the same way that Kurt is, right? Yeah, yeah. He's on the same level as Kurt. They just both want to be relevant. He maybe had a taste of relevance at some point because he was like a DJ who maybe had like went touring and stuff in the nineties. But in a way, maybe Kurt also feels. Like he had a taste of relevance because his quote unquote best friend is this kid who used to babysit named Bobby, who's like this really successful influencer, who actually is played by uh, Josh Ovai, who um, was a really successful Vine personality. Oh, really? He was, he was really, I mean, the whole cast is so good. And I like, I've been noticing this in movies lately. I was talking to Matt about this. They did this kind of in Palm Springs too, where you have these like real archetypal characters, you know, where we've seen like a million times before, but you kind of create them in such detail and with like such unique relationships that it feels like something you've never seen before, even though you can like immediately understand their point of view. Yeah, you know? and their function in the story. Yeah, I think that yeah. has partly to do with satire and how satire works, where you want to pull up the archetypes, but then you also want to, you know, incorporate them to a very specific critique. Um, at the same time, I do, I appreciate you saying that. I do think the whole cast is really good. And what they brought to the film that maybe is just hinted at on the page is a sort of pathos, a sort of patheticness and sadness. Like David Arquette's character is really sad. I mean, it's funny to laugh at him. It's it's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's heart. Everyone's yeah, heartbreaking. Even the kind Basically, of the scummy yeah. the scummy people in the first act of the film. Like you can, it's cringy to watch them, but you can sort of get like what they're driven by. And, and when you see yourself potentially reflected or some element of yourself reflected in those people, then um, it's inherently sad. And just for a little more context, so Joe Keery's character is a spree driver and spree is like the Uber of your world. And so the, the, he's picking up a bunch of despicable writers, as you would expect happens. Um, in L.A. all the and, time. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I like that. That's kind of like the reverse kind of save the cat move, right? Which is like... You don't, instead of seeing him be super nice to someone, or help someone, you see him be not very nice to someone that deserves well, <laughs> to be punished. I think the reverse of the Save the Cat thing is like the, you know, protagonist or main character of the film would be a passenger with like a psychotic driver, right? If you cast, if you, the monster is not usually the one who is sort of like, the vehicle for the story. And I don't really subscribe to any of those formulas and stuff, but I definitely wanted there on a moral level to play with the audience to be like, hey, we kind of like-ish slash cringe at this guy, but he there's a certain like sad charisma to it. Then when you find out what he's doing, you're horrified. Oh, he's fucking, you know, spoiler alert, fucking killing people. But the first few people suck. Like you kind of revel and you're okay with them dying. And then Jesse enters the scene basically at the end of the first act. And it's, you don't want, you really don't want her to suffer the way these people suffered. And also she becomes 
actually gives you a breather from the formal qualities of the film because for most of it you've been kind of claustrophobically contained in his gopros in the car and then you know she breaks through that by um, kind of calling out her co-writer on her social media you know ig story posts and stuff and that's supposed to provide like a sort of visual breather for the audience and also alert them to the fact that this character has her own pov and we hope will survive and become important through the rest of the story. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And then kind of gives you an opportunity to branch out into other found footage streams or wherever the kind of the story takes you. But that's, I didn't realize that that is the first time that we kind of break out of that framework. Yeah, you're probably in his car for about uh, 15, 16 minutes straight. Um, there's a few things like there's the call from dad, which is like a FaceTime, you know, so that sort of turns it into a split screen or whatever. But to really fully break out of the Kurt stream, you're introduced to Jesse. Can I ask a little bit about the technicals? Of course. Right. Because we've been talking so much about how great these performances are. And when we talk about Kurt's GoPros, which is still the majority of the film, I would say, or at least a, a meaningful part yeah. of it. It's like eight cameras rigged to the car. Is that right? So there's one in from the front, one out, and then four on the sides. Yep, eight. Then two, then one in from the back and one out from the back. So it's eight. And what's awesome is because Kurt's character is recording everything in the car and streaming this live, you can show other cameras in your camera feed. Yeah, so right? for sure. So it was a really tricky setup that uh, Jeff Cohen, our DP, figured out with his team. One, these cameras are not meant to shoot features on. Were they really GoPros? They were truly GoPros and they were- The Hero? A Hero 4 or something. And they were overheating in the sun as we drove around LA. And you're running for hours on top. So you couldn't run for hours. You could run for 20 to 30 minutes before they crapped out, which is still actually a lot of time for, you know, um, actors to do the scene again and again. We'd probably get between three and six takes depending on the length of the scene. And, you know, myself and other crew members are in a follow van um, and we have a walkie hidden in the car and we also have a antenna that's sending the GoPro signal. You're seeing all eight cameras? Well, we put it into a splitter and we got four cameras because we didn't need all eight. I wanted the front cam. I wanted a back cam. I wanted the Kurt sort of side view angle. Um, So those three for sure. And then I don't really know. We kept changing what the fourth angle was more or less. But yeah, the sort of main angles where I could see the performances were important to have. And, you know, those would crap out every once in a while too. But the the audio, which, you know, I can usually read performance through audio, was good enough. Yeah, the camera's not moving, right? So as long as, exactly, you know. Exactly. The camera is fixed. So unless they were in front of like some really awesome like drive-by footage, um, it really wouldn't be that different. You know, there's interesting the way that light played on people's faces and stuff was interesting, if not um, headache inducing in the edit, but oftentimes interesting. Yeah, so I would be able to give notes between takes through the walkie and uh, we kind of shot it like that. And were you on a process trailer or were the actors driving themselves? It was a mix. Um, Joe was driving a lot of the time, which is really unique and amazing. I mean, people will see the film, they will see his performance. His performance is excellent. He, what they probably won't know is that he was actually driving a lot of the time. You know, if you know, well, if you don't know anything about Hollywood, you'll assume he's driving the whole movie. And if you do know anything about filmmaking, you'll assume it's on a process trailer or on a biscuit or something the whole time. And it was probably 60 Joe driving, 40 
um, biscuit, process trailer, stunt driver, maybe a little bit more like 70, 30. Joe was really great being able to pull off these performances while making left turns and getting on the freeway and all sorts of stuff that, uh, God bless, turned out to be extremely safe. <laughs> Pretty awesome. And, and the other thing they won't know that, you know, it's not really explicitly about the technical, but Joe's an amazing improver and all the actors were. And, you know, the ideal version of this film is like you have a take and you can cut between the eight angles and just use that single take. And that happened very rarely. So we were cutting between takes and between angles. And we kind of were able to get away with some stuff. But the improving, you know, makes that more tricky. So Ben Smith, our editor, you know, he, you know, we had to come up with this language together because he wants to be one, number one, entertaining, number two, coherent and clear, and, and number three, fast paced, while you're still presenting a really unique visual language, right? Like this, there's no normal coverage in this movie. There's no master shots. There's no crane shots. There's no tracking shots. It's you are stuck in a very, you know, I don't want to say unprecedented, but unique language. So you mentioned the pacing. I, I kind of wanted to come back again, like for listeners that obviously haven't seen the movie and I want to make sure people aren't too lost about the specifics we're talking about. But I think for listeners, they've heard fa- like found footage film kind of, right? That that type of idea. They've heard a horror film and then basically the philosophical stuff, which is like kind of very Black Mirror-ish. And so it's kind of these three different types of films that are put together and I, to me, like what seems to really be the spackle that makes the whole thing work is the soundtrack, which is just so intense and so crazy. And you mentioned the pacing. It goes so fast. Usually, like when I see a movie that has so much music, I'm like bothered by it a little bit. But for some reason in your movie, it just kind of seemed to to drive me exactly where I need to be and created. Sometimes you'll, you would have a scene that I think if I just saw with no music, it would just seem like a normal scene. A guy's driving some people, but then he puts on this music that the character has made himself. And it is just like so psychotic. Can you tell us about the music a little bit and how you how, like how, when do you start thinking about the music in your filmmaking? So it was actually really unique for this film. I um, collaborated with two different composers on the score of the film. Um, one is named James Ferraro and I spoke to James about the movie during the scripting stage and uh, introduced him to my concept for the character. I had a cringe compilation that I made for Joe to see kind of what the origins of Kurt as a wannabe influencer are and I sent that to James as well and I sent him the script. What do you mean by cringe compilation? Like music that no, makes no, no, people no, 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 no. It, it was a compilation of videos of people who were desperate to be relevant on social media or desperate to sort of like be cool and exposed a part of themselves that was really hard to watch and easy to make fun of. And that, like this is like real that's stuff, a real, basically. yeah, that's yeah, just, yeah. you know, a sort of edit I put together. Like a, that's a reference point for, for, for Joe. How, how did you find those? Um, you just go through the web. Some of them are videos that have already gone viral because they are so cringy and others are just, you know, you search for things that have less than 10 views. You know, you organize by lack of views on a subject matter like going viral tutorial. You search that and then you do new, you do newest and the newest, you know, it's not by popularity. And there you will find a lot of people who, you know, the irony, right, is like, like Kurt is you don't have any followers and you're offering people a tutorial about how to get followers. Like there's a lot of people who do that. Um, It's like the girl from eighth grade a little bit, right? She's kind of doing that yeah i mean i mean obviously that's like the non-psychotic version but yeah for every influencer you've heard of there's literally 
10,000, if not 100,000 people around the world trying to do literally the exact same shtick that those influencers do, the exact same subject matter, the exact same vibe, and they just suck at it, or they don't have the je ne sais quoi, or whatever. And I just thought it would be more interesting to make a movie about those wannabes, because it's it's a sad state of affairs for our world, and all we're getting is the kind of like the tip of the iceberg success stories, you know? Um, but anyway, so I shared that cringe compilation with James Ferraro, and based on that, I said, I want you to make music that Kurt could make. I want you to make Kurt's music, and he is this type of person, and this is what it he's... limits the number of tools that he has. Exactly, right? it, li- it limits his resources exactly. and his influences, and as also well. just That's the really skill great. level. Right, it's based on very simplistic beats repeated many times over. Um, but at They're the same, probably canned beats, even canned. like is it something there were pulling canned like library yeah, He came up with stuff? a palette. Yeah. They called it the Kurt palette. And then the real challenge, though, for him, and then our our composer in post, um, Mason Ware, was. And, you know, while the music has to be cringy and kind of like simplistic and kind of bad, it also has to drive forward the film and be propulsive and be kind of good at the same time that it's bad. And that's a really difficult thing to accomplish. That is something that uh, we went through many iterations of songs. And so, but so anyway, James came up with his songs before principal photography began, began. So Joe was able to use those as the sort of Kurt soundtrack in his mind. And, 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 yeah, and awesome. yeah, it was super helpful, I think, for Joe. And then when we got into the edit, they didn't exactly work for keeping the story going. And so then that's when I started working with James Moore and with Mason to come up with um, new songs that kind of could really drive forward the film um, and still be Kurt and bad. And so the final score and soundtrack is a combination of uh, the songs from before we filmed the made the movie and the ones in, during the edit process. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's literally, it seems like maybe easy, but it seems incredibly complicated to make that perfect song that you know, if somebody played it for you and told you they made it, there's a high chance they're about to murder you. <laughs> yeah, and that's the Kurt vibe. And I have to say, working closely with Mason once we had our edit was really, really fun and he just sort of started, there was a certain point when he just sort of started cracking it. And it was really good. Like the flow was really good. But he still initially had very much the same problems that James kind of had when he was trying to wrap his head around Kurt, which was how do I make something that's like really bad and basic and outs, you know, because as a musician, you want to make the best possible music for the film. Yeah, you, you spent know? your whole life branching out from the, the tools Figuring that out Kurt how to have. be good. And now almost like Joe, because Kurt is a performer, right? So Joe had to become a bad performer, which is one of the hardest things you can do as an actor, I think, be bad on purpose. As a musician, they had to start become bad musicians, um, which, you know, was a performance in itself. Right? Yeah. And art and stuff is a muscle, you know, as much as it is like a talent and like a thought process that I've found in my things. If I need like, oh, can we get some drawings from kids that look bad? You know, sometimes like a, the art person will use their left hand or something but a lot of times like you can't really get anything good unless you find a kid to draw it you know Speak, speaking because of that it's, it's hard to make bad art the, the beginning of the film you know starts with a bunch of kurt's social media attempts at social media you know content which revolves around this draw my life meme video right where he kind of gives his autobiography through a whiteboard drawing and narration and that really was joe drawing that stuff and that was a big part of our preparatory process too where 
Joe and I made the Kurt videos ahead of time, like a few, a couple of months before the shoot. And we just used them as exercises to help him get into character. And then during the edit, Ben and myself and some of the producers started talking and we were like, well, we need to, I always wanted to use it, but I didn't know how to use it in the final product. And then when we started thinking about what is a really strong intro for the film, that's when we started incorporating those exercises that Joe did to get into character as, you know, the materials to get that uh, viewer into the world of the film. Yeah, it's great exposition, right? Like how, what a gift to have, you know, yeah, your characters explaining exactly who they are in a really efficient and clean way. That's great. Well, speaking of Joe and your whole cast, you know, uh, Sashir and you have Kyle Mooney in there and obviously David Arquette and Misha Barton and the rest of the cast is also uh, great as well. How do you, I mean, I know, which number movie is this for you? Six? Um, This would be probably five. Five. And I know you've done a lot of kind of art stuff and music videos and commercials and stuff in between. No commercials. No. Oh, really? No, no commercials. You're like, I hate money. Is that really like intentional? No, I don't hate money. I've actually spent the last like 13 to 14 years, my adult life basically being extremely broke. (laughs) But I just like haven't done commercials because if your heart's not in it, you're not going to do a good job or something. And all of the pitches that I did, my heart was in those pitches um, and they're just never picked because you're competing with people who maybe don't have that attitude towards their work or something or just want to appease a product, you know? And obviously there are people who can balance like this sort of like, this is my like vibe and like this is what's best for the product and God bless those people, whatever. But, you know, I really wouldn't want to do Yeah, I, I think, yeah, to me, I mean, just Matt and I both do a lot of commercials. So just the... I think well, our, bless you guys. My, but, you know. my, my point of view Maybe. on it is like no, part no of the skill of being a commercial director is finding your way into things that seem to have zero appeal like at first look. And whether it's a visual thing or whether it's like a... a com- we both do mainly comedy. Um, a comedic moment or a casting thing. It's like, how do you love like you know dolphin harpoons yeah really hard but yeah, i figured you cracked it out that i one. cracked it like nuclear yeah. waste we need more of you that know, i think is really how like, do we do yes. we, um, yeah 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 and actually the campaign yeah. really blew up for me yeah, look i don't you know, Matt we're, did, look, yeah. we're all complicit no, no, in these systems okay. right like we all exist under capitalism or late capitalism like we all pay fucking rent and need to eat and all this stuff like so why not use your skill set to survive you know and like luck you know luckily i whatever i've you know i fucking worked as an editor at condé nast for nine months you know and the whole cycle of my life throughout my 20s and into up until basically this film and who knows i may have to go back to it we'll see what happens with the movie is like you work for fucking a year or nine months some stupid corporate job and hopefully you write a script while you're doing that and then you have enough money saved up if you eat enough, like like cheaply and your rent stays under four figures that you can go out and pitch that script that you have with a deck or whatever. And what happened with my previous two films, actually all of my films more or less besides my first one and Spree, is you're not going to get the money for your script and then you're running out of time and you only have three months until you run out of money. And like, what can you do with no resources with your friends? And so you know, Wobble Palace and A Wonderful Cloud and Feast of Burden, which are the previous three projects, were made basically for almost no money with my friends and um, were shot in seven days. 
and were edited in a month and a half. And then, you know, uh, those two films premiered at South by and they played New York, LA and blah, blah, blah. So, and then I would have to go back to doing horrible jobs. Anyway, before we derailed my question, I was asking you basically about how you got this cast. You know, I saw Drake as a producer. Is that the Drake? There is no it's last the name. The Drake, yeah, is um, the producer. And I know this isn't like obviously a political podcast. It's like a filmmaking podcast. But I do think... Hey, we are happy to get into it. I actually rather yeah. enjoy it. I think everyone has these thoughts on their mind or, you know, their, uh, their relationship with social media on their mind. So I, I don't think it'll be boring to people, uh, even though it might sound like I'm beating the drum or something. To me, it's inspiring to see that the things that are driving you crazy in your life, aside from unrelated to film, can inspire your art, you know? I like that. Well, and also, you know, this isn't the first rideshare movie, right? And so, like, what, what makes this movie special or stand out or unique right is this thought process right the 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 mechanics of oh we've got a character who has a revolving door of different people coming into their car every time that's an obvious story mechanic that's a, there's a lot of opportunity there right and we've seen the whole spectrum of you know quote unquote success or quality as a res- from, from ideas that came from that seed basically right and so i think that understanding your thought process and your philosophies as applied to that story mechanic, I think is how you get spree. And that's yeah. really Matt and I talked before we started talking to you about how, I mean, we, we get emailed trailers and things and people try to come on the podcast all the time. Um, we've seen like some version of this movie of this, um, not the movie, but the uh, engine, you know, a, an Uber driver picking people up. Um, we've even had like a couple of filmmakers on that have made movies like that, but your movie is like, we're like, wow, this is it. You could make a really bad version of this movie, but this is like probably the best version of this type of story that you could make. And it's obviously you're an experienced filmmaker and there's a lot of thought that goes into it beyond just it being cool, but like what it's about. Wouldn't it be cool if he did murders? And the technical stuff is really beyond, like people might hear GoPro, but this is not like, this does not feel like a movie that is like pulling punches. I mean, you know, people get run over. Things, no, yeah, for sure. That's happen. something we considered too when we were writing the script. I was like, okay, well, this first ride, it's going to be, even though there's like a twist in it pretty early on, it's going to be kind of dialogue heavy. So we need to put a stunt in there um, in the first ride to indicate to people this isn't going to be like some cheapy movie because, you know, no, there's a bunch of shit that happens later. That's like, I mean, we shut the fucking freeway down, right? We did stunts on... Hollywood Boulevard. I mean, we train dogs to kill people. So it's not like, you know, some like... <laughs> so that's a real dog killing a person? Exactly. We person? train dogs to kill real people. And so rest in peace. No, no, no. No animals or human beings were hurt in the making of this film. And that's uh, 100% true. But um, yeah, no, I mean, like, look, the movies, you know, I made a reference list, obviously. There's a few different references you make, right? When you try to pitch the movie, you tell people it's like Taxi Driver 2.0 or something, right? But for for myself, what was the Jake Gyllenhaal movie, Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler, yeah. right? Like Nightcrawler, but about social media or because a little bit true. of Natural Born Killers in there as well. Yeah, I mean, for probably, Natural yeah. Born Killers, high, you know, like violent media critique. I mean, for Nightcrawler, I saw that film and I was like, I really like this film, but like it's telling me that it's from two thousand. 11 but it literally takes place in 1994 in a way you know like the the preoccupations and and the way the characters behave and the values are very 1994 like chasing like stuff for news media or something and um 
so yeah, it is a little bit like a, that was definitely on my mind. But in terms of car movies, one thing that was really inspirational was Jafar Parnahi, you know, this Iranian filmmaker who's been banned from making movies by the government. He made a movie called Taxi Tehran, which was all done with in his car. He pretends to be, he basically is like a is an underground taxi driver and going around picking people up. And you really can't tell whether it's fake or real. And um, he, you know, people recognize him as a filmmaker. It's a very interesting film. Even like Taxi Cab Confessions, right? I feel like is one of the old... That was a reference point. There's also something about because it feels, because it's on GoPros and iPhones, and it all feels so real you have an obligation in terms of stunts and in terms of VFX to really make it feel as photoreal as the rest of the film. Like there's no heightened kind of aspect to the way that you do any of the performances or stunts or anything like that, you know? Yeah, except, I mean, this is, I don't want to spoil it, but like in the transition from the second act to the third act, I mean, there's a certain point in the movie where you might think here is dead. <laughs> well, he isn't. You know, and yeah. to me, I was actually curious. Did you cut any any kind of no, time in between? But to me, okay. that was like almost a way subconsciously to have a viewer be like, "Okay, he's back from the dead. This guy's a fucking monster now." Because if in Act One you're kind of enjoying the fact that he's killing these motherfuckers who are his passengers, and in Act Two you feel scared about like where this is headed. In Act Three, when he basically is not dead, you know, rises from the dead, he's a fucking monster, and everything he does in Act Three is really monstrous and right. i definitely he's want michael myers now exactly yeah, yeah. he's michael myers yeah that's fun and yeah. i wanted people to be really scared about where look what he's doing from the get-go is horrifying but your feelings towards the character sort of morph over time and so by act three i just really wanted everyone to be like this is so fucking fucked up you know and because that is how you know whatever the movie has themes that it's exploring right and that's one of them. Can I ask one more sort of uh, kind of technical Please. filmmaking question? Because I think it would be easy to underestimate this movie because it all looks so natural. But if you watch the credits, you know, you've got a full crew. You know, like you said, you shut down the, the freeway. Obviously, you're not doing these things for real. But how, tell us a little bit about the work you put into making it feel authentic, even though you needed the control of a filmmaker. So look, like, yeah, like, like we were saying, like the fact that Joe's driving a lot of the time helps, you know, the fact that the actors can do entire takes without being interrupted helps because it allows them to really be in it. And one thing that I knew was going to be integral to the film, but had a, a hard time having people take the leap of faith is the comments. So when you watch the film, you know, there's tons and tons of live comments, especially in the second half of the film. A, on his live stream. And so I spent many, many nights and weekends writing um, all of these fake comments. There's over 7,000 comments in the film. And then, you know, we had an animator animate them on. And if you pause the movie at any point, it will feel pretty realistic what the people are saying about Kurt and the live stream and all of that. And I think that does contribute a big part to the realism of the film. Like, you know, the, the graphic design and sort of integration of these apps into the storytelling I mean, people, it, it, I don't know why people, you know, when I pitched this movie to a lot of different production companies, they didn't go for it because I think people are scared of things that are new, but it's not, the viewers are not scared of new things. As long as it's like entertaining and believable, they want to see films that are pushing the boundaries and that reflect the visual 
language that they're used to from their phones and from their computers and shit. So that all had to feel really real to me while still feeling kind of like easy to make fun of, right? Because at the end of the day, the movie is comedic and it's trying to make fun of all of these quote unquote realistic things that we do or the ways we use our technology and shit. Right. I think those companies passed on your movie probably because it's like clearly execution dependent. Like we've all seen even Breaking Bad. You remember when like Jesse goes on my face and like dot com in the first episode, it just like instantly pulls you out because it's like such a fake website and your entire movie is based on all these interfaces and applications and sound effects and things that like can easily just be cheesy, you know, but I don't know, like what you said, you spent <laughs> hours writing 7,000 comments. A lot of people would have the art department or the graphic design people do it or like get a PA or an assistant and say, Hey, can you just like write a bunch of comments? Um, and the fact that like you spent the time to do that, I'm curious like about the rest of the interfaces and who designed the Spree app and all that stuff. Like, yeah, so there was a like, few people. How important is that? Really important, right? So the Spree app was designed by Teddy Blanks, who is, um, a graphic designer and poster designer that I've worked with many times before. And he did that before the film so that, you know, the part where Kurt kind of shows you his phone and it rates himself five stars and all that, that was actually in his phone. We didn't composite that. And I thought it would be really important for Joe to have that interaction into the GoPro. Is that part of your pitch when you're pitching the movie? Like you're like, here's what it looks like. And well, no, we got like. that after we got the budget and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, that was designed by Teddy. And then really it was just mostly two other people. Eli Susser did a lot of the motion design. So like the car picking up the Kurtz, you know, the spree car picking someone up or the end montage. That's an extremely difficult and uh, labor intensive thing to design and animate. But like there's a lot of animation. And then, and then Trevor Clifford did all of the comment animation and some of the other app design interaction. And you, you even have to figure out, like it's part of the cinematic language of this movie, like how you split screen comments and apps and when you cut to what and if he's looking at something, if you see that text on the screen or if you cut to, well, you don't have an insert. You don't have insert shots. The insert shots are him showing the phone to the camera. Yeah, there's no, no, but even that's not an insert shot. Yeah, exactly. That's part of the mise-en-scene, like you're not cutting away. So, yeah, I mean, there are ways, obviously, through the eight angles of the GoPros that we were able to jump coverage, you know, and kind of hide things. Um, a really useful one was pointing the camera forward onto the road. So when we had to jump something that was in the script but ultimately didn't work well for the f final product of the film, we used that um, as a kind of our go-to. But, yeah, you have to be creative. Like, I mean, if you limit yourself to a visual language... Um, one, that hasn't been done yet. One, you can create whatever thing makes sense to you. But at the same time, you know, you have a lot of obstacles and a lot of restraints, constraints. And so just figuring out ways to turn those obstacles into creative opportunities is what's part of the fun of this filmmaking, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. I asked this question a while ago, but we never got to it. But can you tell us about the cast real quick? Yeah, super. So um, it's my first time working with a casting director, Rebecca Dealey, and she was really awesome. And, you know, she set up a lot of meetings for me, especially for the Kurt and Jesse characters. And Did you already have money when you hired the casting director? Like you already had the budget and stuff? We had half of the budget. So it wasn't your budget was not dependent on getting a certain actor? No, it was not. Because the two people who came on for the film, one of them had never invested in a film before. And this was going to be their first film. And he had seen my other movies and I wanted to get into movies for a long time. 
and I pitched him the story. He got it right away. He had some ideas of who he wanted for the lead, and I had those conversations with him. But I said, You're "Let's like, just." Tom Cruise is. No, they, they, he had reasonable suggestions, but you know, once I met Joe, it really, really clicked with him. And I, and you know, at the end of the day, that um, EP trusted me. And then along the way, we got involved with Dream Crew and Drake. Dream Crew is Drake's production company. How did you get involved with them? So one of the 30 meetings I had with creative execs was at Annapurna. Um, and the exec I met with there was, her name is Sumaya Kave. And she'd seen my previous films and we had been sort of friendly. And um, she was really into Spree. And she really went hard trying to pitch it there at Annapurna. And, you know, it didn't work out ultimately. Um, and then she sort of went independent and formed a company with another Annapurna um, colleague she had named Matt Budman. So their company, Forest Hill, ended up having a first look deal with Drake's company, Dream Crew. And so this was the first project that they brought to Dream Crew. And the team at Dream Crew was really receptive and they totally got, like, you know, it as a social media critique, which, you know, a lot of the companies I met with really wanted it to lean in harder into horror elements and thriller right. Sorry elements. to keep interrupting, but so do you, you pitch it to Annapurna, then you pitch it to Forest Hill, then you pitch it to Drake's company? Yeah, I company? did all, the, all those as What's the time frame from that kind of like those first 30 meetings? So the meetings really picked up in earnest after my previous film, Wobble Palace, premiered at South by so March 2018 even though my co-writer and I had been working on the script for probably at that point um, on and off for two years and I'd had maybe some earlier meetings in between there but they weren't and you'd had a couple other South by premieres too yeah before that A Wonderful Cloud had premiered at South by anyway so after South by 2018 I went a bunch of meetings probably from March until September somewhere in there maybe in April I met with Sumaya she really tried to push it through Annapurna probably for a month or two. Didn't exactly happen. Um, and then in September is when I met the first um, EP of the film, Spacemaker Productions. That's what they're called. So in September, sort of we tried to negotiate that deal, and we did. And then I think Forest Hill came into being around, um, you know, October, November twenty. Um, 18. That's pretty serendipitous, right? Like that's a long road, road, but it happens relatively quickly. No, I mean it's 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 lucky. I mean every film, you know, you just have to work really hard and grind and have a good good product and really believe in it. And like what helps me is like I just know that like the films I'm making, even even if they're not, to me they feel like unique and not derivative. And I, I never want to do anything that already kind of exists. And I think that is a way to very, not even in like a manipulative way, in a really authentic way, inspire people who are not jaded by the industry or who don't already have their own agenda. And so in that, I'm lucky that Spacemaker and Dream Crew, while they obviously have certain goals and a certain vibe and a certain you know themes that they want to explore in their filmmaking, were, I think, inspired by you know me wanting to do something unique and different and stuff. So yeah, so then I pitched to Matt and Sumaya again, knowing that we had some money, which is helpful, and knowing that you know we're gonna well they kind of came on board. Then we got the casting director, and then we once they came on board, but before Dream Crew and Drake, we got the casting director. We put the cast together with the help of Rebecca and our other producer, John Lang. And then we kind of repitched that to Dream Crew and they were very receptive. And they and, and what's so cool is that one of the people at Dream Crew, Matt Babel, I showed him the Draw My Life thing 
that Joe and I had made. He's like, we, we're going to use this to market the shit out of this movie. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'd like to incorporate it in the movie. I'd like to use it for promotion, blah, blah. And when we came down to it, um, that would be now 15 months later, or maybe even more, I don't know, so definitely over a year and a half later, um, that's what we did. So we, we've been doing this promotional campaign for the last three and a half weeks of Kurt's World 96 on Instagram. And um, it's gone. It has gone viral, unlike you know, unlike Kurt at the beginning of the film. And it's a, it's, we, and we used a lot of the Joe preparatory material, and we shot a little bit more once we were starting to count and during the film. And if you look at it, you would never know that we shot it just in basically like session. It just feels really real and like it's being presented live every day. And um, it's almost like I'm making a second movie right now to promote the film. It's like secondary cinematic extended cinematic universe material. Um, but we did, for instance, a live stream. So one of the cool things is that Joe and David Arquette, um, they'd never met before. So a week before we, the movie, principal photography began, I wanted them to go out on the town as father and son. And I said, why don't we film it? So Joe filmed a bunch of it and I was filming too. And we were swapping the phone, you know, filming live. And, you know, we went to get dinner and we went to a bar and we went to randomly. David got a phone call from someone that he had made a music video with in the 90s. So in character as Chris Kunkel, the washed up 90s DJ, we went to this house to watch a Chris Kunkel music video, which was really a David Arquette music video. Um, and so, and, and Kurt, Joe, the whole time is in characters. Kurt's like, is this what was cool in the 90s, dad? Or, you know, he does a, a review of a Thai iced tea, you know, in character and stuff. And it was all super amazing character building. And honestly, at that point, I was like, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm just going to shoot the movie like this. Forget the crew and everything. I mean, this was because the, 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 the realism and the sort of voyeurism I was experiencing as a filmmaker being amongst these two actors and how good they were at improving. I was like, fuck this is the movie. And if the movie doesn't feel as real as this, I will fucking kill myself. I will feel really disappointed that like the preparatory materials were better than the movie. But ultimately the movie turned out, I think as real, but we use that stuff really intensively in this promo campaign. So Dream Crew got it. All of this is just to say Dream Crew got it right away. And um, they got behind the film and it was super good. Like, you know, the no I got very little notes on the film from either of the um, EPs. Yeah, I, I think it's a great version of a story because i think so many people when they're starting out they're like well i've got this script now i just need a casting director so i can find a, a lead so i can attach them so i can get the money and it's like it just almost never ever happens that way because you know the attaching people with no money and no start date and getting paying a casting director i mean it's just like i think the way you describe it and obviously you have experience of putting together movies is like a good lesson i think to our listeners of of how you have these a lot of meetings and all these kind of building blocks that you're you're it's not like you're putting stacking blocks on top of each other it's like you're building like a base of blocks and then you're like putting a few more blocks on top and then eventually something will like get to a finished film yeah and, and i think even on top of that there's a lot of the ideas that you implemented of like going out and like doing these character exercises and actually shooting them and you know all of that stuff that can feel you know if you if you let yourself get caught up in you know your own ego can feel maybe a little silly or futile or or just off base somehow but obviously they're again the building blocks of what made the movie feel real and then kind of paid dividends as well you know like just going for it just shooting it is what got you 
you know, this viral campaign that's going to help this movie. I, I would say what you just said, just going forward and shooting it. And like, I mean, this is a prime example. Obviously, we had a budget. Obviously, it was it was more than my other films by far. But the same ethos that I applied to those other films is what I applied to this. No one is going to want to fucking make your movie more than you. So, like, you have to put your heart and soul into making it. And if people aren't giving you money or permission, you have to find resources to do it without money. Or you have to you have to give yourself the permission to just sort of dive in and do it. And then when people see that you're already doing it, that's when they'll come on board. That's when people are more confident to come on board. When they see that, hey, this guy doesn't mind shooting on a fucking iPhone this stuff and because the actors respond well to the script, they're down to do it on an iPhone with him. And it's like, okay, well, maybe we should support this because like, if, if, if he's so confident about this and they're so confident about this, then maybe there's something there. Yeah, how awesome is it to be in a meeting with an investor and say, oh, by the way, here's like some thing that we shot for the character. And it's like, already you feel it. You're, you know, showing a tone and a feeling and an excitement and a confidence. And you're not you know, pretentious, like you're artistic, but incredibly unpretentious in that you don't care about the tools or the money. You just care about what you're making, you know? Yeah. I mean, the story dictates it too, right? So if you're going to do, you know, uh, I mean, I always think it's actually kind of shitty when like Michael Bay or something is using GoPros for their little like action, like split second action shots or whatever, because that's not justified by the story. But in this specific case, of course, it is justified. And if you find yourself to be a filmmaker who cannot get money to make a film like most filmmakers can't when they're starting out, there is nothing preventing you from coming up with a story that makes sense with an iPhone or a Zoom call. Obviously, when COVID began, like I just like the the feeling of like, like how many people in LA are making their Zoom movie right now or writing their COVID script. But like a, a, a really, I think, filmmaker who challenges themselves to do something that's resourceful and unique and original should find ways to tell a story through Zoom or through iPhones. And anyone who says like, oh, I can't make my movie because I can't find the money is like, you know, look, look, you need money to survive. So come up with a strategy to make money to survive. But you kind of don't need money to make a movie, really, if you know how to edit. And if you could find cool people who are you know, you don't even have to find actors. Most of my other movies don't have established actors. They have people in my life that I thought were good performers from watching them perform on social media who are like in my network of friends. And I'm like, oh, I can just tell this person is a good performer. So I'm going to hit them up and see if they want to shoot something for seven days, you know, and some of those people have become actors after that. And that's awesome. But um, I think you know, don't let anything stop you from making your movie because the resources to do what we consider a film, which is like, you know, a documentation of 4K documentation tool is called an iPhone or any sort of smartphone. And, and the things you need to edit, which used to be so burdensome, like during the edit of Spree, I was reading a book called Final Cut, which is like a interviews with editors from like the 70s, 80s and 90s, just the, the technical process of editing um, in that era, so grueling and so complicated and so physical. And now, you know, we have all these NLEs from Premiere to Final Cut to whatever you want to use. Even on your fucking phone, you could edit a movie if you really were into it. So, I mean, nothing should really stop a contemporary filmmaker from making the film they want as long as they can keep their lack of resources and, and kind of limitations in mind. Well, I, I know we're running out of time, but I, I want to ask you one last question. So your movie is like very violent 
right? When you're directing the actors and, and it, it feels real and feels authentic and people are into it, like, do you ever feel weird saying? Well, I think like, you know, our approach to this and I think Gene and I, my co-writer, and then Joe and I, when we were coming up with the character, were very sensitive to um, the portrayal of violence in this film, like, because there is violence in the real world. And, you know, beyond the social media critique, I mean, a big impetus for this film is I wanted to make fun of white male mass murderers because I don't think that I have seen media make fun of them. I have seen a really good president go up and say, we need gun control, we need mental health care. You know, um, I have seen the New York Times and other publications come up with a psychological or socioeconomic critique or like, you know, origin of why someone would go out and do that. But the, a good president and a good publication cannot make fun of these people. And I do think this film does not make the violence cool. Like, I don't think there is like aesthetically, like if you look at a movie like Natural Born Killers or something, or even like Joker, the violence feels like kind of like empowering or cool or something you'd want to emulate. I mean, Kurt, or even just sensational. Or sensational. You know, just yeah, very- here it's kind of detached. And Kurt is a very cringy character. He's not someone that you would want to emulate. He's not like, oh, cool, all of a sudden, once he starts committing violence. So to me, that was the sort of approach that I took in the writing and also with the crew and with the cast of like, look, we are doing this to one, make fun of this type of person and two, to not make the violence feel cool. And Joe explicitly like was very uncool in the movie, even though there is something you see of yourself in him. And so in- inevitably you kind of want to like him or something. He's not cool. So th- he's he is a movie star though, which is a complicated thing, right? Like he's got that it factor, and I think it's really funny. You know, the thing that maybe Joe was most famous for in Stranger Things is his hair, and you very clearly like make it look so dumb. <laughs> and it's like, like obviously, I was like, oh man, this is such a good move, but it's really it's like it's slicked down. It's, it's like the exact bangs. opposite of the Steve Harrington yeah. hair. Like I would love to do horror films, but I'm like. I feel like I'm not good at directing cringeworthy things because I'm like, oh, that's gross. You know, and I feel like part of you, you have to somehow get into a mind space where you're like, yeah, kill, kill him, you know, or like just kind of, uh, or, or do you not? Or is it all technical and you're like, well, you know, then you're going to do this and this and this. Okay. Just, yeah, it is pretty technical. Like for instance, the scene where he confronts Bobby at his doorstep. Oh, yeah, that's a, that was extremely technical scene. because Bob, Bobby is wearing a body cam that we had to kind of invent and sew into his clothes and it was extremely cumbersome. And then we were like, you're not getting the right angle, Josh. Like you have to like tilt your body a certain way. And then like, you know, like that's a retractable knife, but everything has to be real. So like there's, there's like, that's actually has very, you know, complicated coverage that we knew was going to be broken up into multiple takes and angles and stuff. Um, even though it's invisible because it's a split screen that the quote unquote never cuts. So, you know, it's very technical and same thing with the dogs where the dogs attack, like that was its own sort of technical, I don't want to say nightmare, but huge challenge because everything in the junkyard we had to do in one day and it's basically three different and nights. And those dogs are for real. Those dogs are not acting. They are headed for whatever they're. They in. are like, acting. You know. I mean, they were trained to. Ru- they were trained to run up the car. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but I guess their aggression anyone. feels real. Yeah. Oh no! I mean, I yeah, mean, yeah, it feels real. To... There's trainers and stuff. I mean, you know, that sure, was course, weirdly one of the most expensive things. Training the dogs. I had no idea how expensive that would be. Um, you know, and so it is really technical. But obviously, even it being technical, you still have to have the right. I think when you engage in violence in films. Like, is there a reason for this beyond the sort of just like sensationalism of it? 
And I think, you know, probably even those movies like American Psycho or Natural Born Killers or something like that could mount a valid defense. But even, but even beyond the defense of like we're critiquing violence, I just wanted to make sure that the violence didn't feel cool. And I think for- even if you were to misinterpret your film, no one's ever like, oh, I want to be that guy in a way that like, you know, maybe there's a, a deranged person who would feel that way about and that. Guy. That's exactly my intention, because I think even when a good president talks about a horrific act and a horrible person and the New York Times talks about a horrific act and a horrible person, there can be someone who looks at those things and say, hey, this person speaks to me. And I just wanted to make a character that we could really for lack of a word, like shit on, like make fun of. And, you know, and even though I also wanted that person, people to see themselves in that person's behavior a little bit, because like we've all want attention on social media, blah, blah, blah. I just didn't want him to be cool, you know? Yeah. Wow. Well, cool. Well, that this has been awesome. We've been talking to you for much longer than we usually talk because it's so fascinating. We can probably spend another couple hours, but yeah, maybe we'll have you back on in the in the future, I'm really curious to see how the transmedia stuff affects the release in addition with COVID and everything. Where can people watch your movie? So on August 14th, it will come out on VOD, iTunes, Amazon, all cable on demand, and simultaneously in drive-ins across the country. Oh, fun. That's great. What For a great movie, drive-in. right? Because oh, you're in the car watching yeah. in the car. We had... Uh, these guys, The Wretched, they made the movie The Wretched. Oh, yeah. And their movie was like number one in the box office. For like hey, weekends. you know, that would be a yeah. dream. Yeah, I I feel yeah. good about Spree. Are you, well, I, I yeah. hope you're right, knock on wood, because um, I would really like people, in, just people to be talking about the film. It's not really even about like the number of rentals. I just wanted to make some sort of dent on culture because I feel like it's a it's an entertaining and fun movie that's actually about something. Yeah, well, you really pulled it off. I think Oren and I yeah. both Thanks, I hope a bunch Thanks of teenagers much. go yeah, stand at drive-ins and then stop using social media. <laughs> that uh, that would be awesome. <laughs> uh, Eugene, do you have a, a time to uh, hang out and endorse with us real quick? Unpaid endorsements. I'll kick it off, Eugene. Um, I uh, There's a new comic out or a new graphic novel, if you want to be fancy, called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist. It's by an artist named Adrian Tomine. I think he's quite famous for like his New Yorker covers. I think you'll recognize. And he has been like an indie comics artist since the 90s. I think he was kind of a wonderkind from Sacramento, which is where I'm from. And so I've always loved his work. And he kind of went on a long hiatus. He had some kids and just kind of was hanging out. And this is his return to the form. So it's a fun kind of autobiographical piece just about the nature of being a solitary artist. And so I think it's really interesting for both this time period, all the COVIDness of it, and then also just how you relate as a screenwriter or a filmmaker, because there's a lot of alone time. So uh, the loneliness of the long distance. And how do you read cartoonist. this? You buy it. You you buy it like a book, you know, just like uh, you can get it from your Amazon local uh, indie bookstore. Yeah. Or, okay, or that cool. Too. Thanks. That was interesting. I like that recommendation. Um, on Instagram, there's an account called Tuck the Suck Man, and um, he has been during quarantine making a weird series of videos called Pat Sedina Cyber Detective. And he's sort of working with the tropes of noir, but in a really like intentionally stupid and campy way. And just literally kind of what I was saying before, just someone who is taking their phone and a kind of like, you know, digital camera and doing something fun and creative with their friends. And um, 
it's just something I kind of check into every once in a while. And I'm like, oh, this is like so stupid and funny and underseen. Tuck the Suckman. T-U-C-K-T-H-E-S-U-C-K-M-A-N. Yeah. He has 698 followers. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Well, let's get it up. 700. Come on, everybody. Yeah, let's get it to 700. That's awesome. Yeah, this looks really cool, actually. I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All all these things where you can click on play, that's Pat Sedina. Oh, cool. Um, Well, I have one. I have two things. One is uh, very L.A., and then the second one I think Eugene will hate. But um, have you guys heard of Millard Falls in Altadena? It's so... We were going to go to the beach yesterday, and it was very cold, and so... We were like, oh, we should go hiking somewhere, but I like never go hiking. And I texted my friend who's always posting like amazing waterfall photos on Instagram. And I was like, where do you, where do you go hiking? And she said, well, if you have a, I have a four-year-old, if you want like a real easy hike that you can literally take your parents to and stuff, it's one mile, it's 150 feet elevation. It's in Altadena, which is right by Pasadena, 25 minutes away from Silver Lake. It's called Millard Falls, M-I-L-L-A-R-D Falls. And it's a waterfall and it's just like, it blew my mind that so close to Silver Lake, which is the opposite of a waterfall, you can go and it's like tree-covered creeks that you have to climb over and logs you have to walk on. And it was pretty pretty COVID-friendly. You know, most people were wearing masks and stuff, kind of some narrow paths and stuff. But it was just beautiful and awesome and free. And uh, Millard Falls, check it out. And then, the, so the second thing, and I hate to endorse something that spams my Instagram feed all the time. And I think I've even talked about them before, but I got these shoes, these Vessi shoes, V-E-S-S-I, and they claim to be like totally waterproof. And I bought them for the rain and then it never rained because we live in LA. And uh, I wore them yesterday and I literally was walking inside this waterfall, like in like foot deep water and my socks stayed dry and they look like totally like regular sneakers, V-E-S-S-I. So I'm not saying you should buy them, but if you are wondering if they really are waterproof, then yes, it's insane. Um, and new balances for the record are uh, somebody can like sneeze a mile away from you and your sock will be soaking wet. So they're the least waterproof shoe I've ever worn. That's especially important in these <laughs> <Yes>. days. <laughs> awesome. Well, Eugene, this was such a treat. Thank Wait, you to, so much. To follow you. I mean, obviously everyone should follow Kurt's world 96 on Instagram, but what's uh are you also a person on there? Yeah. You can follow me at a uh, mad about huge mad about huge. <laughs> yeah. Not oh, bad. Love it. Not bad. And your website. I noticed everybody loves dot me. That's yeah. Pretty great. Uh, yeah. That's pretty. Oh, that's cool. I think I'm going to go a little dark. I don't know. I was going to say, I think I'll go a little dark after the, promo campaign and the movie's out because i'm working on that like that promo campaign like 24 7 um but uh but who knows i probably won't (laughs) (laughs) you feel like my movie blew up here i am at the drive-in oh yeah and you're Um, gonna be at the art well we can't wait to see you in a q a right oh yeah oh yeah tomorrow uh well it'll be too late for this but yeah there's there was there quote unquote was a Q&A um, on Tuesday, August 11th at the Arclight Drive-In at the Vinewind Drive-In Theater. Maybe that archive is online. If so, we will throw it up on the site. Thanks so much. If you want to learn all about the things that we talked about on the show and check out the trailer for Spree and all of the other things that we dropped, uh, you can go to justshootapod.com and you can follow us across all social media at justshootapod. I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm at O. Kaplan on Instagram and at SmiteyPileg on Twitter where I'm doing more tweeting for some reason. Um, call us, leave us a voicemail, 1262-SHOOT-1. Email us, just shootapod at gmail.com. And uh, this episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. 
Thanks for checking it out. Thanks, Bye. everyone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.